Hey, welcome to the Night Church Podcast, where we meet every Friday evening for worship at the Loma Linda University Church for young adults by young adults. We hope this encourages you and someone else you know. Enjoy. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Good evening, everybody. It is good to be here. I... uh, and part two of this series that Phil just talked about. This series, we're on a mission to discover Jesus in the book of Revelation. But you'd think it'd be easy because John starts the book, he says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. However, over the centuries, you know that much of the discussion about this book has been about the beasts, the dragon, the symbols, instead of the one who Jesus 
who John was writing to reveal to us. And this discussion has generated an unnecessary fear of who Jesus is, the fear of God, the confusion about His character. And so it's my hope tonight uh, and in this series that it will be a series that restores your hope in who Jesus is and restores your uh, faith in His love for you and me. As Phil said, my name is Carl Lindsay. Tonight we're going to be talking about Revelation 5. You just heard the uh, recording and the entire chapter, and I'm going to talk about the scroll, the one who is worthy to open the scroll, why he's worthy, and what we should do about it. But first, a question. By show of hands, how many of you are mildly or slightly curious, slightly uh, interested in the British royal family? Uh, There's Phil, I see you. There's a few of you, yeah, yeah. Okay, what about Harry and Megan? Um, what about, maybe it's you just pay attention when these guys make headlines. You know, according to the New York Times, Prince Harry's book that came out earlier this year, Spare, enjoyed a record-breaking, best-selling hardcover book. It was one of the best-selling hardcover books in recent memory, on day one. Uh, the LA Times reported sales of 1.6 million copies in the first week alone in U.S. bookstores. 29 million Americans watched Harry and Meghan's wedding back in 2018, and, twen- and 10 million Americans this year watched the coronation of King Charles III. And you all still call yourself Americans and celebrate the 4th of July. Are you sure you're free? I think the idea of a monarchy and royal family remains a fascinating relic of a bygone era. While you might like to think you live in a country that is free, the reason I bring up uh, the British royal family is because Revelation 5, as we just heard, is the recounting of John's vision of a coronation, the coronation of the king of the universe. And so there's an open invitation for each one of us to join this royal family. There's an invitation for us to join this family that operates on a completely different set of values, a different set of principles. It operates on love. And we're invited to serve this King out of our own free will, if we so desire. Let's pray. Father God, come into this space tonight. Join us on this rooftop I pray and give us clarity of thought, give me clarity of thought and tongue as I share these ideas and may you open our minds to, uh, to hear what you have for us to hear. Lord, teach us to worship you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is working. The coronation of King Charles III was a lengthy and highly symbolic event. Uh, Symbolism, of course, is almost a default in, the, in a, a, an event like that where it's been happening for centuries. And so, a coronation is kind of like a wedding. It's a dedication or it's a commitment where they're made, commitments are made to God and country rather than to a bride, like in a wedding. Uh, I didn't watch it, but I looked over the liturgy and it's, there's lots of prayers that were prayed, there's speeches that were made, and there's songs that were sung. And then... Charles was anointed, uh, and then they gave him a whole bunch of regalia. 
Regalia are certain little objects, different objects with symbolic meaning that get given to people of royalty, I guess. So they gave him spurs for his boots, they gave him a sword, they gave him bracelets, a royal robe representing the robe of righteousness, garments of salvation like uh, as, the, as the robes, and then he gave him an orb, a ring, a glove. And in the last regalia they gave him before crowning him king was a scepter in one hand representing kingly power, and in the other hand a rod representing equity and mercy or covenant and peace. All of these things point to the same aspect of the role of, as all of these things point to some aspect of the role of head of state that he is going to uh, take up. And they're intended to indicate the solemn responsibility given to the new king or queen in and lay a foundation for the manner in which they are to rule. So after this happened, he finally gets the crown placed on his head. He, uh, and then moments later, the archbishop and everyone else called out, God save the king. So that seems to be the moment that he is crowned king. And I'll come back to this moment a little later. But why does England need a king? You might argue that he, they don't really. And maybe you're right in today's modern era. But why has any kingdom who has ever existed, needed a king? What was their motivation for installing someone to ultimate authority? I believe they all observed the self-centered nature of their societies and deemed it necessary that someone be given the responsibility of being ruler and judge over the people. It may seem like a good idea as long as you've got someone who's actually capable of doing that, someone who's found who is worthy of that role. Someone who can actually live up to ruling the people with justice and unselfish principles. But absolute power corrupts absolutely. And royal family after royal family, in country after country, nation after nation, kingdom after kingdom, they abuse the system, oppressing one group of people and exploiting the other. And so the founding fathers of this country fled to a new land and fought for freedom. Did I hear an amen there? <laughs> but it may have helped for a while, Derek, especially in the areas where they felt heavily persecuted. But in the long run, humans are still humans. Humans are still just as selfish as we'll ever have been. And despite the freedom this country claims to offer, where did I, I lost it. Despite this freedom the country claims to offer, you and I are still capable of oppressing and exploiting others. The need is still there for a king who can rule with justice and mercy. The monarchies of old demanded homage and worship. And in our so-called freedom today, we have changed the object of our worship. David Foster Wallace once wrote, there is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. You just get to choose what to worship. So before we dive into the text, I want to give you a few moments to ponder the questions. Just think to yourself this, uh, the answer to this question. Who or what have you been worshipping? And how have you been worshipping?
Think about that for a moment. And another question, is what just came to mind worthy of your worship? Let's jump into the text. Uh, I'm sure you're aware, Revelation, as we've kind of discussed already, is full of symbols. The language John is using to describe what he saw in vision comes from centuries of Jewish history. And so, in this coronation scene in chapter 5 of Revelation, the scenes and objects all have meaning. We're not going to go into all of them tonight. We don't have time for that, but I do want to talk about the scroll on the throne. It's the only piece of regalia that shows up in this scene. And so, like King Charles's items, it must have deep meaning. But first, we have to set the scene. If you have your uh, Bible app, we're in Revelation 5, but before that, Revelation 4 is kind of, Revelation 5 opens in the middle of a discourse of the throne room of God. So, we go back and set the context uh, where John is in a vision viewing the throne room of God. It's full of imagery that we find really hard to imagine, and I'm sure that John found it hard to put what he saw into words as well. He saw a throne, and in Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, John writes, He who sat on the throne had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was like a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Then John saw the one on the throne. He was surrounded by 24 elders sitting on their own thrones and four living creatures. These living creatures were all unique in in appearance, uh, yet they all had six wings and were full of eyes in the front or the back. It's certainly a strange scene to picture with our limited imaginations. However, one thing is clear. Those in the presence of God can't help but worship Him. These living creatures cry out day and night, holy, 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 and declare Him worthy to receive glory and honor and power because He brought the universe into existence and because It was all by His own will and creative power. So, that's what we see in Revelation 4. Revelation 5 opens, John looks a little closer at the throne, and he notices a scroll locked inside. Sorry, a scroll at the right-hand side of God, sitting on the throne, and it's sealed with seven seals. So, one, one naturally wonders, what's inside this thing that is sealed up? When I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll that was written within, within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. That's verse 1. So, we don't use seals too much anymore. We don't know uh, what a seal is, maybe. I received a wedding invitation recently, and it was uh, sealed with wax on the back. So, that kind of idea. A seal locks the scroll closed, and it's got seven of them. It's ensuring the string binding the scroll wound up up, is closed and not opened. But it's not evident if John knew what was inside at that time. But given that it's on the throne, he knows it's important. And if we skip ahead to the later chapters of the book, we will learn that when the seventh and last seal is actually broken, we see the second coming take place and earth's history gets brought to a close. 
So it makes sense then that this, uh, the contents of the scroll are connected somehow with the arrival of the kingdom, on, kingdom of heaven on earth. So one commentary I read described this seal, described the scroll, sorry, as the title deed to man's inheritance. So if you think about it, this idea uh, makes a lot of sense. A title deed indicates the ownership of a property or vehicle. So if you think about your car, you might have a little document at home somewhere that says, this car belongs to you. I have one for my car, car belongs to me, Carl Lindsay. My name is printed on it, right? If I don't, if I so desired, I can go s- through the process and sign it away to one of you. I can give it away uh, and then it becomes yours. If I don't have access to that title deed, my right to the car is limited. So think about the earth. In the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam and Eve almost like a rental agreement to Adam and Eve. And He didn't give them the title deed at that point, but it was in His plan. And that, that inheritance was to come in the future. They, but what happened was that they ended up giving away the power of attorney over earth's rental agreement to the devil. They signed the, so they signed the planet away. And since that moment, the devil has been abusing the planet to the point where the evidence of God's handiwork is almost unrecognizable. He has specialized in misrepresenting God, deceiving us about our true identities and making the case to us and the universe at large that God's way of living is unjust and unfair. But you know this, in the process, He's brought hell to earth, selling it as the better option. We've been lied to about who we are. We've been lied to about our identity. And all of humanity has bought into the lie. Every single human being who has ever lived has made decisions according to this false identity. We've made decisions that were self-serving and destructive to our relationships with others and with God. That lie has changed how we worship. We worship out of obligation sometimes, some with some warped sense maybe the paying homage to that paying homage to the king will satisfy his demands. And sometimes that might not seem to work, so we change who we worship and we deem the things of this world more valuable, worth more of our time than God and regularly find ourselves worshiping those who are not eternally worthy. God becomes secondary. And since Eden, because of this, our right to the inheritance, our right to that title deed was forfeited until someone was worthy enough to be able to buy it back. And so the question is raised in Revelation 5.2. The angel says, who is worthy to open the seal, open the scroll and break its seals? John looks around and no one can be found. No one in heaven or on the earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look at it. No one, dead or alive, or any angelic figure, is worthy. So, if this is the title deed for for eternal life, and there's no one who can open it, then it seems as though earth is doomed to run its own self-destructive course. So, John weeps loudly. 
What does it mean to be worthy? What does this person have to be worthy of? And why could no one be found? I want to take a moment to highlight uh, something about, something to keep in mind here about the language. Because when we ask if someone is worthy, the answer has to be, it depends. The answer has to be asked, worthy of what? Because to be worthy is a binary adjective. There are only two options, right? You're either worthy or you're not. There's no in-between. No almost, no little bit worthy. It's either yes or no. Today we see a lot about being worthy, a lot about worthiness. We're told to stop telling ourselves that we're not worthy. We're encouraged to help remind others that they are worthy. But we have to make sure we're asking the question of what we are worthy of and where did that worthiness come from. Okay, so question for you all. Is anyone here worthy to perform brain surgery? Do we have any neurosurgeons in the house? No? What about someone, is anyone worthy to, we have one? Not yet, okay. <laughs> is anyone there, is anyone here uh, worthy to, res to take out my wisdom teeth? Any dentists? Surely we got some dentists here, no? Matt, you're a capable uh, emergency doctor. What, what kind of surgery do you do? Say that louder. Intubation. Chest tubes, okay. All right, so question. Would you, uh, would you allow me to do that to you? <laughs> Probably not. Probably not, right. Uh, you seem to like Rena. Would you let her do it to you? Maybe not still. <laughs> I don't get to do the intubation because I'm not worthy, right? When it comes to these things, we're looking for qualified people. Those who have passed the required tests. We want... We want people who are worthy of the task at hand. Yeah, in the emergency room where Matt here works, you don't want someone in there who's not worthy of being there. You want someone who can actually do the things you need done uh, to save your life. At one point, I was deemed worthy to graduate from high school, right? I had passed all the tests. A few years later, I was deemed worthy to graduate from college. Again, I had passed all the tests. This worthiness was granted to me by the teachers, the ones who made the classes. So if we take this line of thinking back to Revelation, we can deduce some answers to our earlier questions. The angel is looking for someone who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. So this individual needs to be passing the test set by the test maker. They need to be living the principles that lead to an abundant life. They need to be obeying the rule of love. They need to be following the law of God. So the scroll in Revelation uh, is not just a title deed, but it's also a representative of the law of God. So it makes sense then that the title deed to man's inheritance belongs to whoever can live their life according to these principles. 
the principles inside the law of God. Only the one who keeps the law is worthy to receive the everlasting inheritance. But when the angel asked for that individual to step forward, no one could be found. Isaiah explains this situation. Next one there. Uh, Isaiah explains this situation in chapter 59, verse 12 to 16. He writes, Our transgressions are multiplied before you, O God. Our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Our iniquities are that we're transgressing and denying the Lord. We're turning back from following our God. Let me go keep. Truth is lacking. The Lord saw it and it displeased Him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and He wondered that there was no one to intercede. No one to intercede, no righteousness, no justice, truth was lacking. There was no man. This is John, uh, we're talking about in Revelation, and he said he might have been familiar with these texts. He knew that there was no one who was worthy. And so that's why we see him weeping. I'm so glad that you've been listening to the first part of the sermon. This sort of production does require some financial cost. If you'd like to reach more young adults with this across the world, would you consider giving at praxisministry.org? You can select the Praxis Young Adult Envelope. Enjoy the rest of the sermon. You know, the prophet doesn't actually stop there. In verse 16, we read it completely. Nope, maybe I missed it on the screen. Never mind. Uh, Verse 16 completely is that God saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then he continues, his own arm brought him salvation. His righteousness upheld him. Because there was no one to intercede, he comes and does it himself. He does it by his own arm, which is representative of his own strength. He did it by his own righteousness. It was his righteousness that made salvation possible. And if we're honest with ourselves, we don't measure up to the law. We never have, and without Jesus, we never will. We were in desperate need of an intercessor. And so God stepped in, to bring salvation. That's when we see, back in Revelation 5, we see one of the elders calling out to John, telling him to stop weeping. He says, weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. All is not lost. The Lion has prevailed triumphed, overcome. The lion has won the victory. He passed his own test on behalf of his creation. And now with a title deed to the inheritance of eternal life, he can give it to whoever he chooses. And so John lifts his head from his weeping and he looks. What does he see? Verse 6 tells us that he saw a lamb standing, and it looked as though it had been slain. What happened to the lion? We just, the, the, 
the elder just announced that a lion had conquered. This lamb looks like he's been slain by a lion. I'd like to think that John was a little confused when he locks eyes with the lion, or with the lamb, sorry, because there's no similarities, there's barely any similarities between a lion and a lamb in their characteristics. They both have four legs, they both have a head and all that kind of thing, but other than that, they are completely different animals. I've been uh, blessed to be able to go on a number of African safaris. I've seen plenty of lions in my time, but this lion sighting is one of my favorites, and it really reminds me of why, uh, what, yeah, this embo- is embodies what I think of when I think of lions. This guy is beautiful. He's fearless, regal. He knows his status in the animal kingdom, and he can hold his head high. Lions don't really have any other predators aside from humans, and they rule on the savannah like mighty... What was I going to say? Sorry. <laughs> they rule on a savannah like mighty warriors. In every other species, every other species is keeping a watchful eye on them in case their name comes up on the menu next. And it's this connotation that gives the lamb the title of the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the ruler over all creation. He is a mighty warrior king who holds the power to bring victory over sin and death. Yet, yet this is not how he overcame. The lion of the tribe of Judah overcame with the humility of a lamb. John has just introduced us to Jesus in this text as a slain lamb, as the slain lamb of Calvary. Reminds me of Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. A lamb with the power of a lion. Who would have thought? The next thing that John tells us is that the lamb comes and takes the scroll and sits down on the throne. He accepts the position of king. So what made him worthy? Well, he kept the law. Jesus Christ was and is the only one who has ever lived up to the standards of the law of love in the most fullest sense. He lived the life we couldn't live and was killed at Calvary so that the internal inheritance might be ours. I know that the world says that it's not healthy to think of yourself as unworthy. However, in this case, it's the truth. I'm unworthy to perform surgery. I'm unworthy to take someone's wisdom teeth out. I'm unworthy to take the scroll. But friends, that is where this story gets good. The story of the slain lamb is the story of God demonstrating His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 verse 8. This isn't the typical gospel sermon. I'm not going to say that you're a sinner saved by grace. I'm saying tonight that you were a sinner. You, When you accepted Jesus, you actually became a saint through grace. Because Paul continues in verse 9, we have now been justified by His blood. He was the only one worthy to open the scroll and has now made you worthy too. Not worthy to open the scroll, but worthy to receive an inheritance of eternal life. We are no longer to identify as a sinner trying to sneak in the back door of heaven. He opened the front door wide open 
for all of us. We can walk in unashamed, washed by the blood of that slain lamb. Paul writes in Galatians 4 that God sent forth His Son to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent His Son, He sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave to sin, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's where that, that inheritance comes in. He has qualified you, Colossians 1.12, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. But like I mentioned earlier, the devil has lied to us about our identity. He says, you're not worthy of this inheritance. You're not worthy of receiving love. These are lies. God's kingdom is based on free will. There's an open invitation for each of us to join the family. So who will you believe? Where will you place your identity? And what name will you give yourself? Have you ever looked up the meaning of your name? In Jewish culture, names were deeply important to them, defining the person's identity in many ways. Names were linked to their character, and in many cases, they ended up seeming to be prophetic about the person and their, uh, the way they live their life. For many years, I've been haunted by the meaning of my name. My middle name, to be exact, Carl James. James comes from the same root as Jacob. And if you're familiar at all with the story of Jacob and Esau in Genesis, you know that the name Jacob doesn't have a great meaning. Jacob means to supplant, to seize, to circumvent, to usurp. Jacob is a deceiver. I carry the name of someone who takes what he wants by force and deception. And I didn't like that. Mainly because I knew that it was often true. I could list plenty of times when I've lived up to that name. The name Carl happens to mean the same as Charles. And all the name books and websites I remember looking at as a teenager told me it meant strong or manly. So I viewed myself as a manly deceiver. And it felt just like such an oxymoron. I wanted to live up to the first one, but I repeatedly saw myself under the identity of my middle name. However, earlier this year, when I was dealing with some questions and struggles, I, was I felt impressed to look up the meaning of my name again. I don't know why it was different this time, but w maybe they've done more research. Because the meaning of Carl, when you Google it now, oh, where is the picture? There it is. It's free man. I was free. That truth hit home fast. All the struggles I was dealing with were answered in the truth that Jesus had set me free. After all, Carl is the name I go by, not James. He calls me by name and he calls me free. Because of the cross, you are a friend of God. You are chosen. You are a masterpiece. You are handmade for good things. You are a child of God. You are brand new. You are greatly loved and free 
indeed, a free man and a free woman. Jesus letting us know that He has set us free. Through His worthiness, we get our worthiness. So don't, let the, don't forget the source of your worthiness. When you listen to the recording of the chapter at the beginning of this uh, message, did you notice how all those in the throne room responded when the Lamb took the scroll? It wasn't anything like the coronation of King Charles. I went on YouTube, I found the part where Charles received the crown on his head and everyone called out, God save the King. And I found it fascinating that it was such a solemn ceremony. There wasn't a single visual celebration of the moment. Not a single person was smiling. It was just, God save the King. But not so in Revelation. The rest of the chapter tells how the elders and the four living creatures worshipped. They had their harps and they all sang a new song. I imagine such a joyful celebration. They sang out, You were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Verse 9 of chapter 5. That's you and I they're singing about. Ransomed, redeemed, reconciled to God by the blood of the Lamb. Next, the angels join in the song. Myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands of them. I don't know how many that's meant to be, but I think that's the point. Innumerable, all singing praises to God. Worthy is the Lamb, they sang, verse 12, who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then every creature on the earth and the sea joined in worshiping the Lamb. Verse 13, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. I really like how the ESV translation ends this chapter. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. It's all about worship. Like I mentioned before, I've been seeing this trend online, reminding us to speak truth over ourselves, tell us how worthy we each are. This is an important thing to do to fight against the lies of the devil. However, we must remember why we're worthy. We must point back to the source and worship the one who made us worthy. There's a verse in James that says, even the demons believe in God and they shudder. They know He has the power of the lion. Just the acknowledgement of God is not enough. Worship involves showing adoration and devotion. Most of us believe that God exists, but are you worshiping Him in your everyday life? After all, He was the one who has brought you safe thus far by His grace. You have so much to thank Him for. I saw on Instagram the other day a post that said, a real relationship with Jesus is the key to unlocking who you really are. And I believe the key to a real relationship with Jesus is authentic worship. The authentic worship of Jesus is the solution to a world gone mad. We live in a world where everyone is clamoring to be worshipped rather than give worship. You see this on social media with those seeking their 30 seconds of fame. 
There's those on the sporting teams worshipped by thousands of fans. And the list goes on. And it's so easy to join the confusion. But these things will fail us. Only Jesus will provide the fulfillment that each of us are looking for. So to close, I want to give you four ways you can worship. Number one, surrender. It starts with surrender. We need to realize that without Jesus, we have nothing. Any form of control that we think we have is just an illusion. So you need to give everything to Him. He's not just asking for one element of our life, not just 24 hours on the weekend. He wants your whole life, your social life, your relationship choices, your career, your entertainment choices, all of it. And in return, He'll give you an abundant life that you couldn't have dreamed up on your own. Secondly, we can worship by communicating. Talk to Him, pray every day. If you're intimidating by praying for an hour at a time, pray for five minutes. Acknowledge Him throughout your day. Give thanks for who He is and who you've become by His grace. Communication goes both ways. We have to open our, the ears of our hearts to what He is trying to tell us to get us to hear. And that will mean blocking out the distractions of the world, giving Him space to talk. Maybe He'll speak to you in your heart or maybe it will be through His Word. Don't neglect your Bible. Don't neglect reading His Word. Reading the Bible is an act of worship too. Number three is to gather. Worship by gathering. Don't neglect meeting together with other believers. Worshiping together in a group is a space for discipleship like this, a space for us to be discipled and contribute to discipling others. It can also be a significant support for us when we're in this slump or for others who are having their own struggles. So meeting together allows us to see the goodness of God playing out in the lives of others, which in turn strengthens our own faith. And finally, worship by going. Take your strength and faith out into the world, into your everyday life, and allow your worship through surrendering and communicating daily to permeate every minute of every day by living for and serving others. This can be done at your job, with your friends and family, or with complete strangers, because you can't treat people we can't worship God as treasure and treat people like trash. And as you go and serve, pay attention to where He's calling you next and follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Surrender, communicate, gather, go. Ultimately, as I quoted earlier, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. Are you consciously choosing who you will worship because the only choice we will get is what to worship make no mistake friends about what you are all worthy of know your worth and worship him who deemed you worthy of the price of his own life thank you for the cross lord 
thank you for the price you paid. Help us to worship you every day, God, and may we always remember your amazing grace. Thank you so much for listening to the Night Church Podcast. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon. And if you have, maybe you can share this with a friend. If you'd like to stay in touch, you can follow us on social media at Praxis Ministry or come visit us in Loma Linda on a Friday evening. We'll see you in the next episode.